Hi, Stephanie here. I am an entrepreneur, lobbyist, wife, mother, book lover, and political junkie. I think gender equality is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And I love to learn, especially from other women. So I started Women Don't Do That, a bi-weekly podcast and blog to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. Lydia Frank is the Vice President of Marketing at Cronus. Prior to Cronus, she served in a number of marketing roles at Payscale. Previously, she led digital content teams at About.com and MSN. Lydia is also a strong advocate for creating more accessible paths to power for women, people of color, and other historically marginalized groups in the labor market and economy. She has been a frequent speaker and media contributor on the topic and has contributed related content to various publications, including Harvard Business Review, Money, Fortune, and TechCrunch. And it was through one of those publications that we found you. Lydia holds a BA in journalism from Central Washington University. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you, there's so much going on in the world today. We're recording in early January. You're in Seattle. I'm in Ottawa, Canada to ask you how you are doing? <laughs> That's a big question um, right now. I mean, thankfully, my family um, is healthy right now. And, I, you know, I'm employed. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think compared to some others, uh, we're doing fairly well. Um, so, you know, I, I don't feel like you can ask for more than that right now. Um, mm -hmm. It feels like a lot. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, I'm newly living the homeschooling situation um, where I live. The kids never went back after March break, but then they did go back for a little bit in September. Um, so they're just back to being home again. We've just had our first week and they just announced it. It's at least two more weeks, but it, uh, it could be longer than that. So you've been doing that for a few months. Yes. So back in March, 2020, um, you know, Seattle was one of the cities that, that locked down pretty early and school was part of that. So I haven't been to my office and my son hasn't been to school since March, wow. <laughs> early March. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's been interesting. I, I mean, thankfully, I happen to have a spouse who has a, a different type of job than I do. He's a chef. And oh. so his hours are different than mine. He's not okay. so nine to five. Right. Um, so we're able to figure that out and balance and juggle. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. My husband works in manufacturing. So I'm able to work from home and be home with the kids and uh, but he has to go out every day, which also means he's potentially exposed to a lot of people too. So, I mean, that's one thing I find everybody's situation and what they're experiencing, like you said, is so unique, right? And um, a lot going on. We'd like to ask people, what motivates them to live their best life? You know, I think especially in the context of 2020, um, the phrase life is short has never been more meaningful. Uh, you know, I think that has been brought into sharp relief for many of us in that, you know, 
you only have so many days on this earth and Mm -hmm. you want to spend them well. Um, And, you know, I, I don't think that that should motivate people to kind of eke out every productive hour of every day. I also think a big part of that too is finding time for rest and recovery um, as well, you know, so that you can be as present as you can in your life. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a big uh, kind of theme that I've been thinking about this year is um, feeling grateful for the time that we do have and, and figuring out ways to really fully maximize, um, uh, you know, the life that we're given. Yeah, it certainly puts things into a different kind of perspective. Uh, absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about your career path? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, you know, it's a, a bit of a meandering <laughs> career path in some ways. Looking back, it makes a, a, a sense, I think, how I arrived where I am. Um, but I wouldn't say I set out to be where I am exactly. Um, I started in journalism, so I majored in, in journalism in school, and specifically print journalism, which, you know, looking back, that was a horrible idea, um, <laughs> because uh, print was kind of on its way out. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate in that early in my career, I was able to pivot pretty quickly from print to online. Um, so I, I was working in kind of digital content um, for a lot of my career at both MSN as well as about.com. Um, and when I came to PayScale, it was in a marketing role, but that was my first marketing role. Like I didn't necessarily study marketing, uh, but they specifically wanted to do a lot around content marketing. Right. Um, and so it was a good alignment with kind of what I uh, had experience in. I would say, though, I learned a lot of kind of marketing on the job. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't um, it wasn't kind of a traditional <laughs> uh, marketing career path. But, uh, you know, I, I think having joined PayScale when it was about a 40-person company um, and being part of its growth story and, and the scaling, you learn a lot. You know, we went mm-hmm. through lots of different stages of growth and um, – and when I decided to leave PayScale uh, in, at the end of 2019, um, you know, I felt ready to kind of uh, ramp up some other areas of, of um, kind of my marketing knowledge. Like I hadn't really tackled things like demand generation fully. Um, and I wanted to kind of challenge myself to own marketing end to end when I came mm-hmm. to Cronus. What uh, is did you say demand generation? What is that? Yes. So um, it's really uh, getting people to um, our sales team, essentially, okay. that are, are wanting to buy, right? So I right now work at Kronos, which is a mentoring software company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt really aligned with some of the values I hold and, and things that I wanted to be working on. I wanted to work on something that I felt like was going to tackle issues around workplace equity, which mean a lot to me. And, and mm-hmm. um, I, I felt like mentoring was a good uh, kind of area to focus on in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, for, in terms of kind of the things that I'm responsible for, I'm responsible for everything marketing. So that includes brand and um, 
uh, content marketing and strategy. Uh, it includes back-end marketing operations, but it also includes demand generation, which essentially is how do we get people that are interested in what we're selling in the door and in front of our sales team who can kind of um, help them understand if it's a good fit for their organization. Okay. I really liked uh, and can relate to some of the things you said, especially about when you look back about how your career path makes sense, but when you're walking through it, you don't always know what that means. And I have definitely felt like that, like the little steps all make sense now in terms of getting to where you are. And maybe it goes to maybe some of our younger listeners that you don't always need to know what you're going to do. Uh, I think that's maybe, yeah, an important message too. And I also love that you jumped into marketing and, and learned it and was, and willing to learn something new because that can be really scary. And it's something that sometimes women struggle with. So that's really encouraging to hear. Can you talk? Oh, sorry. Quickly. I I would just say something I feel like I learned along the way was I, I think I spent some years earlier in my career questioning whether I was on the right path and, um, asking about like what my dream job was and, you know, did I need to uh, uh, change course because was I on that like dream career path, right? Right. And I think what I I really learned over time was that you can craft your dream job, you can mm-hmm. create it, um, and it it comes a lot from kind of looking at where you are, what you're good at, what the company needs that you're working for. If it's not a good fit, fine, you know, but like there may be ways to identify the things that you really love to do and find ways to do that within the setting that you're in. Mm -hmm. um, If you challenge yourself. And I think that was a big lesson for me over time is, you know, I, I started to become really passionate about things like workplace equity, diversity, inclusion, And those were things that I was able to identify ways to work on those within the company I was working at Payscale at the time um, and find ways, you know, not only to do things like start a diversity and inclusion task force for Payscale, like for our employees, Mm -hmm. um, but also look for ways to work on those topics in relation to what we were doing as a business because Mm -hmm. it was important to our audience at the time too. But it helped me really craft kind of my, my future as well to like, mm-hmm. where do I want to go? Yeah, it's so true. And, and some of the jobs like content marketing, when you started your career didn't exist, right? In, right. Like in the same space and social media. So it's, uh, you don't know what can come in the future or, or I remember in university, maybe my first job, like, you know, people will ask, like, what's your dream job? And I thought working in the Privy Council office, which in Canada is like the prime minister's department that um, is non-political and they, they you know, make sure cabinet has all the information they need. And they had a task force on like the war in Afghanistan and the war in terror. And like mm. now I'm an entrepreneur that is works on lobbying and I, I love it and I, I wouldn't change that right now. So it's interesting. Um, and now I recognize with my skills and talents, I actually wouldn't enjoy that other job or actually probably be that good at it. So right. it's really interesting how that can evolve. 
I want to ask you about working in the technology sector. You work in marketing, but you, you've worked in the tech sector. What are some of the misconceptions about your industry? You know, a big one, I think, is the concept that um, there is a meritocracy mm. in the tech industry. Um, and I think it aligns really well with, with some of the learning I've done over the last several years around diversity, equity, and inclusion is, you know, there's a strong belief, especially in tech, that if you work hard, you will be recognized and you will advance, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, that's what leads to, to advancement is hard work and, and skills and know-how, and you'll be rewarded appropriately. Um, but if you look at the numbers, not just in tech, but especially in tech, if you look at the numbers in terms of representation of uh, women, people of color in leadership roles in that industry, it is disproportionate uh, to, um, you know, kind of the percentage of, of folks entering that industry, right? So, you know, you look at the funnel and like, um, the, I think the percentage of like white men, for example, starting in the tech industry, I want to say it's like 30% or something in junior roles. But when you get to like the C-level, it's like 70%, right? So it's like that if, if you believe in a meritocracy, what you're saying is that white men are more capable and more deserving and do all the hard work. Right. And um, I think, I don't think most people would say that that sounds right or fair right. or right. correct. And so I think that's a big piece is especially having really embraced um, DEI and, and trying to talk to people working in technology uh, about it. There's a strongly held belief around this idea of a meritocracy. And I think it's, it's hard to challenge that because it's such a deeply held belief. Right. Um, but I do think it's really important to pull the layers of that onion back and help people see what that says when they hold so tightly to that belief. What, right. what do women and people of color hear when you say that if you just work hard, then, then you'll be rewarded when that is not their experience? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For listeners who aren't aware, what do you mean when you say meritocracy? Essentially that, that um, you know, your advancement in your career path is equally proportionate to the hard work that you put in. Like you will be rewarded based on merit, um, you know, uh, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like that's right. how the tech industry works is that you do good work and you get rewarded. Right. Um, but the numbers just don't bear that out because mm -hmm. then what you're saying is that women – um, white women, women of color, men of color aren't doing hard work in the mm. tech industry. Right. And I think if you challenged, you know, somebody with that, that, um, that deeply held belief system around this meritocracy and you said, is that what you're saying? They would say, yeah. well, no, you know, I'm not right. saying right. that. Yeah. And it's like, but well, then the numbers don't uh, bear that out. Like you can't both say that it's a meritocracy and it's working for everybody and then look at the numbers in terms of representation yeah. and leadership in the tech industry and say that, that both of those things are true because it's just, it, it can't be. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I've definitely learned in my career. And I think I would say to other 
young women is like, you really do have to drive your own career growth. Like your managers, you know, maybe you'll have a great manager, but for the most part, their interest is yes, like in growing you, but in growing you for their company and their interests and what they're trying to do with the company versus, you know, whatever the sky is the limit for the skills and growth of you yourself. And so I think for myself, I kind of always had this view of like, the manager has my best interest and like, they're going to help grow me. But I think at the end of the day, you really need to own growing yourself. And there's so much that you can do uh, without, you know, your direct manager, like be, being your mentor, right? Because yes. they're, they're, yeah. And maybe well, that, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, sorry, I was going to say to that point, I think there's danger in, in um, convoluting the two, believing that having, a, when you're seeking out mentorship, that your manager is the best person for that yes. because to your exact point. But I do think having mentors around you is really important and sponsors and, mm-hmm. you know, people who can give you great advice. Um, yes. And, you know, I, I always love the idea of like a, a number of people have kind of called out this concept of like a, a group of mentors, mm-hmm. like kind of your own personal board of directors, um, where there's certain <laughs> people you go to, to ask them about certain topics who have expertise in certain areas. And I think that's really important. You want to think about how you cultivate that group of people that you trust to give you good advice on your career. Um, and sometimes that will be a manager who mm-hmm. isn't thinking about the best interests of the company to the detriment of, right. of their people, but is thinking about both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and wants the best. There are many great managers who want the best for their people. But I, I would say too, they do have a little bit of a conflict of interest there sometimes. Yes. And, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you're creating this kind of personal board of directors um, from people without, outside of your company as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great advice, especially when, when we talk about mentorship sometimes not all the time they're sometimes they're high level people and if they are they don't have a lot of time so if you are using that group model then like you said there's different people you would go to at different times for different types of conversations when you talk about mentorship it brings me back to a question I wanted to ask you about the company that you work for can you talk a little bit more about what it does sure um so Cronus is a mentoring software as a service platform uh, essentially, um, we work with organizations who want to launch and scale mentorship programs. So whether they're just starting or they've been doing mentorship for a long time, but it's getting to a point where maybe it's difficult to manage manually. <laughs> um, so we do everything from using technology to match mentors and mentees um, uh, and yeah, our customers can configure that. So if diversity is really important to you, you can you can utilize that within the matching algorithm. If you want to match based on skills, based on uh, level, all kinds of things. Um, then after the matching, it's really like keeping people connected and moving along a path, right? And so we have kind of built-in connection plans within the platform that you can customize as well um, so that there are milestones along the way. There's built-in kind of feedback um, mechanisms within the platform so that you can understand if mentees and mentors are having a good experience mm-hmm. um, and measurement as well. So we connect with 
um, systems, HR systems that organizations might already have in place, for example, uh, so that we can say, okay, for people participating in the mentorship program, are they having better outcomes than those that aren't? Are they more likely to get a promotion? Are they more likely to get a pay raise? Are they more likely um, to stay with the company over the long term? And we That's see so a lot of that impact. Yeah, yeah, so we'll see a lot of times that people participating in a mentorship program um, have a big difference in terms of, of mm-hmm. retention with the company because they feel invested in, they feel like the company cares about their future and their career path. Um, and so they're more likely to stay. Right. Do, you, do your clients tend to, would you say, be like larger scale companies or do you see kind of medium and smaller companies using it as well? I mean, I would say uh, we have quite a number of of large organizations, we have three of the Fortune Five. You know, um, uh, it 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 definitely is helpful for big global organizations that are trying to scale uh, these programs. But I would say we also work with higher ed. So we work with schools that are doing mm. like student peer to peer mentoring, or want to do alumni student mentoring. Like business schools do that quite often. Um, we work with professional associations, um, you know, that are trying to connect professionals within an industry, but cross company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with nonprofits um, who use it in all <laughs> different kinds of ways, youth mentoring. Um, you know, there's there's a bunch of different use cases that we see um, but but it's certainly like if if you have a mentorship program where there's 10 <laughs> mentors and mentees, it's probably you don't yeah. need this level of software, right? Right. Um, so it, it does tend to be better fit for kind of larger programs. It's so interesting when you talk about AI and just some of the the ways it can be utilized now and just some of the science is quite amazing. It's very interesting to hear about what yeah. it's doing yeah. on the mentorship side. Before we jump into talking about something else, is there anything else you would share or think people should know about mentorship? You know, the the big one for me, um, the reason that, you know, I personally moved in this direction was because of my passion around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there was a great article in Harvard Business Review um, talking about why diversity programs fail. Like mm-hmm. that was the name of the article. And they were, did this big study um, across hundreds of organizations over a number of years, trying to look at like, what are the most commonly implemented strategies around DEI and what do the outcomes tend to be in terms of representation and leadership for women and people of color? And what they found is that things like mandatory diversity training and grievance systems and other things actually had a backfire effect where there were less women and people of color in management roles after these programs Mm. than there were before. Um, And what they found in terms of what worked were a couple things. One was having like a diversity council, like a diversity task force of some sort that was focused on what should the company be doing around this. The second thing that was most effective was mentoring. Um, that when you put mentoring programs in place and you did it with intention to make sure that those that maybe weren't naturally getting career advancement opportunities were focused on, um, you saw more women, uh, women of color, uh, men of color in um, 
uh, management roles after these programs. So that just aligns so well with where my values are. Mm. And I think people don't always think about that. When you think about mentorship, you think, oh, yes, everybody could benefit from a mentor, but they don't necessarily think about it as a a DEI strategy, but it it very much is. And it's where we're focused as a company, for sure. Um, And it's a big part of the reason that I joined Cronus. I love when you see research projects like that where you can actually look and, and, you know, see what makes a difference instead of just people thinking it, it just yes. it makes such a big difference when you can have evidence to to, to back up what you're doing um, we need more of that for sure I wanted to ask you what are some of the barriers that women face in your field what are some of the, the barriers um you know, it's interesting because answering that question now versus even 12 months ago yeah. um, is a big difference. <laughs> I think with what's happening now and not quite knowing how this year is going to go, mm-hmm. um, you know, the pandemic has been a big impact. Uh, we already knew that women were bearing a disproportionate share of the burden in terms of childcare and um, kind of taking care of, of kind of the home front. Um, there's plenty of studies showing that, um, uh, that that's the case. That, yeah. um, I mean, there's even a study that was done with MBA students where you ask the female and male MBA students at the start of their MBA program if they thought that they would um, kind of share home responsibilities and childcare responsibilities equally with their their partner in the future if they if they partnered up, right? Yeah. Um, and their perception for men, they thought no. <laughs> they thought that likely their spouse would take on a bigger share of the responsibility. For women in the MBA program, they were like, of course, right? It's gonna be 50-50. Yeah. Um, and what you found when they came back to them, I want to say it was like 10 years later or something like that. They came back to these same people. It was exactly what you would think, which is that women were taking on a bigger share. So like they had the best of intentions and hopes, like going to this program, women were like, of course, I'm going to get married and we're going to, um, you know, share the responsibilities equally. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happened. Right. Um, and, and it's not that they had horrible spouses. It's no. that you know, it's kind of built into a lot of our expectations um, mm-hmm. in society and, and even internally, like you, you take things on, take on more than maybe you should. Don't, yeah. don't push back and say like, no, we need to like share this responsibility equally. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that was already an issue. And with this pandemic, it's just gotten thousandfold. Yes. And sometimes I think too, I don't know about other women, I guess I should more speak for myself, but I find like I end up being part of the problem, right? Like just filling the gaps or taking things on and just because I want them done instead of kind of making that gap where, where my spouse does have to step in and every once in a while he'll ask me to do something. And I kind of like, I'm dumbfounded. I look at him and I'm like, I am not your secretary. (laughs) Like, no, I will not make you that list or whatever stupid request it is. (laughs) I'm not doing that. Um, But 
you know, it's those moments where you kind of realize, like, this has come too far. (laughs) Well, and I I think (laughs) I totally hear what you're saying. I think you're right. You know, I think what can feel hard or challenging for women, too, sometimes is, like, you don't want to have to ask. Like, you don't want to have to. No, because then you get accused of being naggy. Right, right. You don't want to have to say, like, I am, I have too much. I need you to do something. But, like, sometimes you do. Sometimes... Mm -hmm. Because it's not like um, the the person on the other end of your romantic relationship is doing it on purpose, right? Yeah. Um, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's like there are times when you have to say, I need some time for myself or I, I yeah. am taking on too much and I am burning out. Um, mm-hmm. But And it's just hard in this pandemic environment that we're in. Like mm-hmm. there's not the level of additional support you can seek out. Like you can't go Absolutely. outside for you child. You can't even care. hire it if you want to, right? Like yes, even right. if you do have the means to afford to pay for additional help, you can't do it right yes. now. And depending and on where lean, you live. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, in this Lean and McKenzie study, they've been doing this women in the workplace study every year for a number of years. And this year, um, really what they, they did focus on this issue in particular, and they found that um, I think it was, I don't want to say the numbers wrong, but there was a big portion of women that were considering stepping back, Hmm. um, either paring down their hours or leaving the workforce altogether because of the pandemic. Yeah. And and I think it was like a hundred thousand of them were in leadership roles. So it's like, well, what does that do for the advancement of women, especially yeah. women of color who are bearing an even bigger burden and whose healthcare outcomes are even worse for this mm-hmm. pandemic. Like, what does this do to kind of representation and the progress that's been made, which was already slow, you know, um, yeah. this just has a huge, yeah. huge Oh, it's impact. so true. And I mean, I know we'll see the studies and stuff afterwards, but even antidotally, so um, I was mentioning earlier, the school, like we just got the message yesterday that the schools will be closed longer here. And I reached out to a bunch of my friends and I don't know what it's like in the States, but in Canada, the the people who work in lobbying and the news and the politicians are all on Twitter and we all talk to each other. Mm. And um, I, I made a message and said, like every woman that I spoke to yesterday who works from home and these are like senior people, some of them mm-hmm. own their own companies, cried yesterday Mm, because mm -hmm. of how hard this is and everybody else was saying the exact same thing and like these are women leaders who are just saying like I how how can I do this and you know I'm sure in some cases there's men experiencing it as well but everybody's just kind of saying like we've had enough this isn't sustainable like how do Mm -hmm. we um yeah it's um it's a lot. And, it, and there's not a clear solution because, no. <laughs> you know, there's this raging <laughs> pandemic going yes. on. So it's not like we can say we're done and we're not doing this anymore. No. It's like, well, what's the alternative? Yeah. So, and it's interesting too, because I see a lot of the comments will then kind of tell the government to fix it. I'm like, well, I get that there's a role to play in all of this for government, but also like it's a global pandemic. The government can't just like snap its fingers and mm-hmm. fix this. And you know, have the kids back in school or have Corona stop or like all of a sudden have the vaccines tomorrow. Like it just doesn't work that way. So it's complicated. It's a level of personal responsibility there. Yeah, it's it's challenging. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about and that I originally thought that we would talk 
about is compensation and salary negotiation, which like you had said, given COVID, it's an interesting conversation. So in this context, do you think the conversations about compensation and salary negotiation look different? I mean, I, I would say when I have talked about this subject and, and, you know, I was lucky enough to work at Payscale for 12 years. So Mm -hmm. I I spent a lot of time immersed (laughs) in compensation um, conversations and data. Um, But a lot of the advice I would give when talking about salary negotiation was understanding the context around it. Mm -hmm. And I think this applies in this situation. So I would always say, you know, you have to understand when you're going into a pay conversation, absolutely, you should do your research, understand the market um, uh, for your role in the type of industry you're in and years of experience and all those things that might impact it. But you can't do it in a bubble, right? You have to understand the context in terms of you know, what's the size of your company? What industry are they in? Is it struggling? Is it not struggling? So like, um, you can't, if you march in and say, I'm worth more, and you absolutely need to pay me more, I'm leaving. Um, you know, that's, that's not the best approach, right? It's, it's, you have to understand kind of the factors, um, uh, and timing is a critical piece of, of salary negotiation, I would say. Yeah, um, I was thinking about it, right? Because like if you're a person who's working from home mm-hmm. during COVID, but you're working really hard or you're working extra hours and maybe even though your kids are done, you're still putting in all of your hours. Like that puts you in a different place than if, you know, you've had to cut back and you're only working part of your even right. your normal job to, to um address that conversation. And do you consider like salary negotiation, compensation, like there's two different pieces to that, right? It's like when you're getting the job and when you're negotiating that salary versus when you're already in the job and you're negotiating that salary. So maybe let's break that down. When somebody is in the conversations about um, nailing the job, they're asking Mm you, um, you know, I guess first, the first step they usually ask you is like, what is your, like, what is your salary expectation? That's usually what you get asked. What kind of advice do you have for people when people, when you get asked that? I think, you know, there's been a lot of debate around kind of the, the concept of salary history and how much that impacts your future earning potential and whether, you know, and there was a lot of debate about whether salary history could be asked. And um, at least in the States, you can't ask anymore. I'm not sure with Ah. Canada if you can or anymore, but you can still ask expectations, which is Mm -hmm. a different question, um, but could still have some of the same problems. (laughs) Uh, But the, I would say absolutely have more leverage at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it's important that you don't allow your own salary history to impact what you ask for. I think you have to make sure you really do your research ahead of time. And there are sites like Payscale and Glassdoor and others um, that you can do that research. LinkedIn has its own salary information now as well. So there's a lot of information out there that didn't used to be out there um, mm-hmm. years ago. So you can um, do that level of information. Also, you know, I think it's uh, 
the the kind of rule around not talking about money um, mm-hmm. is one that has been ingrained into a lot of people like, oh, it's not polite. And I don't know if I should ask. Um, but I think a lot of people have gotten past that, uh, especially kind of younger generations who understand the the value in asking your friends and your peers mm-hmm. and your colleagues, yeah. um, especially that are working in similar roles what they're getting paid so that you understand if you're, if you're not getting um, kind of compensated in the way that you should. I mean, I do think there is a lot of complexity to it on the mm-hmm. other side as well in that the way that salaries have been set have typically had a lot to do with like what city you're living in, yes. um, what industry you're in, the size of your company, like uh, a 10 person company is not going to pay you what Microsoft's going to pay you or Google yes. or Facebook. Um, so, you know, it's like you have to be cognizant of there are some differences, but those sites that exist in terms of salary research also mm-hmm. often take that into account mm-hmm. and you can enter things like the size of the company or the industry or that kind of thing and, and understand the difference. Mm-hmm. I think it comes, yeah, doing the research, like you said, is just so valuable so that you you know what the worth is of right. that position. And like you said, like you, you can't take yourself out of the equation. And I think that's one of the challenges sometimes with women. I know there was one job change where I had done where my salary increased by 20,000 and it was just, I was underpaid in the job I had yeah. before. It was what the, the work that I was doing was worth. And I remember like, as I was doing job interviews, every time I would say my salary expectation when they asked me I would increase the number <laughs> and and every time I got more confident and they didn't blink so I was like well I guess right. I should be asking for more <laughs> and I slowly that's like, a great that's would a great increase idea. how much I was asking um and obviously benefited it from the end and there was an, another time where um it was a different sector but I, I'm a lobbyist by trade and it was still lobbying mm-hmm. but that sector pays a lot more than some of the other sectors and so I did my research and it was like fifty thousand dollars more than I made so when oh, they asked wow. me yeah. my salary expectation I said it and again they didn't blink because that's how much mm-hmm. they pay but if I hadn't done my research I could have been yeah. making you know 40 grand less than colleagues yes. for doing the yes. exact same thing, which is ridiculous. And yeah. I remember even being, like I said to one of my friends, I can't even say that number out loud because it is so ridiculously high. And she was like, you have to ask for it. Go and mm-hmm. ask for it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need a friend to just force you to do yeah. it because why wouldn't you if, it, if that's what it's going to be worth to the employer? Yeah. Um, yeah, so like you said, like doing that research, do you have any advice on when they ask you your salary expectation, what your response should be? Like, do you tell them a number or a range or, or I've heard people say, turn it around and ask them, well, what's your budget? Which sounds a little bit pushy maybe. Yeah. Too, so. I, I mean, I think it's best to avoid a number early in conversations. Yeah. Um, so it's best to say, like, I'm I'm very, you know, open to considering any competitive offer, um, mm-hmm. I like you that. know, that kind of language. Right. Um, and sometimes they really, really push you. I think it's also okay in this day and age to say, like, I'm not really comfortable landing on a number until, you know, we talk a bit more about the role, you know, this kind of thing. So, I mean, there are ways to kind of not get boxed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is fair to come back and say, you know, what are you targeting? Like, yeah. um, 
because they have a number in mind. They're not, yeah. no, nobody, no company puts a job description up and has no idea what they're going to pay that person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they have a budget in mind and they have, a, they want to stay within it and maybe they have wiggle room, but mm-hmm. you know, they should be able to give you some idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever number they say is less than their max, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. you know that you have some room probably to ask for above what they're telling you. Yeah. Um, I also, it, it's funny when you were talking about like not being able to say the number out mm-hmm. loud. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me, I don't know if you know this woman, Cindy Gallup. Um, she's pretty outspoken, uh, uh, kind of former ad executive. Um, and she has her own business now. And we actually did a project when I was at Payscale with her where we put together what we called a Cindy bot, which was a salary negotiation bot on Facebook. Um, that was kind of the like person on your shoulder uh, to give you that kind of push to yeah. ask what oh, you're worth. So you like enter your information about your job and your compensation. And she basically this Cindy bot would like um, give you motivational kind of <laughs> advice. I like it. But one of the things that she said uh, um, that she's been quoted saying is, you know, say the number that the, um, that you can say without laughing out loud. Like right. that's the number you should ask for essentially is the one right. that you can say without laughing yeah. out loud. Um, and so, you know, it, I wouldn't necessarily that's, say that's always the way to go, but right. I do think you want to temper that with research. Yeah. Um, but I think the tendency is that often, especially women, unfortunately, do tend to undersell themselves. And mm-hmm. so yeah. likely if you're thinking, oh, it sounds like a lot, mm-hmm. it's probably not enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And yeah. So I think the research piece, like we've both said is, is really important. And um, I'm trying to think there was something else that came to mind there about practicing for your interview too. like have people ask you the question and practice yes. responding. Because for me, everybody's different, but it's saying it out loud and practicing the line so that when they ask me, I don't just freeze. <laughs> it's like, um, yes. yeah. I was going to say too, there's this site um, called biginterview.com okay. where you can record yourself uh, like doing a, a practice interview. Like oh, they basically have interviews with kind of fake interviewers that are like asking you questions. Like it's a recorded thing. And you record yourself giving the answers and then you can watch it back, which okay. sounds horrifying, of course, because yeah. you're like, oh God, I don't want to watch myself <laughs> answer that question. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's important because if you do that, you can get better and improve and, and think about like how you want to present yourself. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Is there anything you would add that's different about once you're in the role and you want to talk about compensation with your manager? Yeah, I mean, it is more challenging to ask for like giant compensation increases, right? Once you're in the role, like you do have a lot more leverage going in. Mm -hmm. So it's like you have to temper your own expectations that typically a company is going to budget like 3%, right? As as raises annually. That's a, a very common kind of target. So if you're wanting more than that, um, you kind of have to ensure that you're through the, the year that you are building your business case around that. And right. that's on you too. Like, 
Um, if you are not kind of thinking in the ways that you're adding value to the company and making that clear to your manager and kind of making your expectations or your desire for a pay increase that year clear to yeah. them early, they can't go advocate for it, right? right. So it really is kind of a year-long campaign yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. to think about, like, am I doing the right strategic things that are going to add value yeah. to the company so that they would feel justified in giving me that? Mm-hmm. That's why I think when, when you had talked about how you have you have more wiggle room as you're going into the company, right? So my advice is usually to people go in as high as you possibly can, because once you're in, it's really hard and they'll hire somebody else to pay more money to do what you're doing. So like, like spend the time doing the work on the front end because it'll, it'll get you later. Um, something else I've done in past positions that has been really helpful, especially when, you know, some companies you'll have a yearly conversation about those types of issues. So there's a natural, a place to have that conversation. And I, I used to save like positive emails and stuff for my CEOs or like just little things. And I had an email yes, folder. Yes. So then when I went to do my performance reviews, I would just pull up that email and be like, well, here's some Absolutely. examples. Um, like you said, so you're kind of making your case and, and, and gathering things because I think mm-hmm. there's a difference between you did your job well versus which is what's expected yes. <laughs> versus yes. I, you know, I'm doing a job that's above and beyond, above yeah. and beyond what I, what I should be mm-hmm. doing. And I think sometimes people get lost in there on themselves. If you're thinking critically of yourself, you, you are supposed to do yeah. an excellent job of what you do anyways. Right. So what is pushing yeah. you into that next bracket? And I think, I think sometimes where people get lost there is they get a little, self-righteous maybe around Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do something that's not part of my job right like you know if you want me to do that you better compensate me to do it and it's like yes but you also have to show that you can do it like Mm -hmm. that is an expectation so should you do something forever that is above and beyond your job without getting compensated no of course not but um should you do it for six months, you know, uh, to a year and like demonstrate that, that you can kind of take on this additional um, uh, kind of level of responsibility? Yes, because then you do have the business case to ask for more. But you also along the way should set that expectation. Don't just expect that your boss is understanding what you're doing. Right, yes. You should say, I'm excited to take on this new level of responsibility you're giving me. Great. Could we make sure to check in about compensation? Like if I knock this out of the park, since it wasn't originally part of my job, could we talk about compensation maybe in six months? Mm -hmm. So like set that expectation um, early. That's okay to say, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you'll get an idea too of whether they value that additional work that you're doing enough to to consider an increase in compensation because if they balk at that and are like oh I don't know yeah um you know that maybe you need to push back a little bit more on like well you know if if there's no possibility for kind of moving my compensation here and it's a big step up in terms of my responsibility it seems a little out of sync Mm -hmm. um so it's you just don't want to wait uh to kind of set that level set I guess with your manager 
We, I want to jump in soon to the closing questions because we're running out of time, but I did want to ask you if there's not already a natural time to have that conversation, what advice do you give to people about timing? Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to, to ask, you know, um, if, if it's not clear to you, like mm-hmm. how often the company looks at, at compensation increases or what should your expectation be around talking about a compensation, you know, um, and you could state like my expectation would be like maybe a year into the job that we're talking about this. Does that make sense? You know, mm-hmm. um, you just be proactive about it. Yeah. Um, don't be afraid. to ask. Uh, yeah. Don't be afraid to ask. And it's not rude mm-hmm. um, to, yeah. to just understand uh, kind of the expectations on both sides. Mm-hmm. Okay. One final question before we jump into those yeah. other ones. What do you, what advice do you give if they say no? I think no is the start of a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's what I always say in terms yeah. of salary negotiation. If they say no, that's, um, you have two choices. You can get angry, walk out of the room and pout, <laughs> right? Um, or you can ask why. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's hard because yes. if someone's telling you no on compensation, you sometimes are afraid to hear why. Yeah. Um, like, oh, do they not think I'm performing well? Or, yeah. you know, but it might have nothing to do with your performance. It might have to do with the company is struggling. Um, yeah. We're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> we don't have the budget to give anybody raises this year and you're doing great, you know, this kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So just don't make assumptions around why they're saying no. Mm-hmm. You really have to ask some additional follow-up questions to understand the context. And if it is about your performance, everybody needs to understand that feedback is good and valuable Absolutely. and it makes mm-hmm. you better. Um, and so don't be afraid to hear it and learn from it. Yeah, I, I that is great advice. It can be scary to ask, but it's really good. One other thing that just came to mind is when you talk about um, how much do you ask when you're doing a salary negotiation, like on the front end? One, one rule I've kind of kept and have heard, and I don't know if it's, you would say the same is if you, if you think the low number is here and the high number is here, they're going to come somewhere in the middle. That tends to be in my industry anyways, what will happen. So if you want 110 grand to be the final number, you ask for 115 and almost, almost all the time it will be like, Mm -hmm the 110 or is what's your advice on that kind of a thing? Yeah. I mean, I think shooting a little over is always good because it will probably settle somewhere lower. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And if they say yes to the higher number, great. Um, but I do think one thing I talk about with people too, is sometimes people will do their salary research and see a range for a position and say, well, I, I'm going to ask for the top of the range, obviously, Um, when really you should do a little bit of self-assessment because a range for a position also has to do, I think of it as a journey a little Mm -hmm. bit. There's a range. And if you are relatively new to this role and you're relatively junior and you're still learning, you are likely not going to get the top of the range. Right. Because right? it's for like, people who yeah. have either demonstrated or are coming in with exactly. five to 10 years experience. Yes. Who are, who are, you know, more senior in that role and almost on the cusp ready to jump into whatever yeah. the next. And then it gives you that growth. 
that yes, you want to and see. if you yeah. that's the thing too if you come in at the absolute top of a range for a position you don't yeah. have anywhere to grow the company yeah. can't afford to pay you more yeah. so like you should expect no salary increases <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. like pretty much for the next couple of years or whatever until you're ready to be promoted mm-hmm. so like you do have to think about that like you have to be reasonable too about your mm-hmm. expectations that's great advice thank you okay we'll have to do the last couple of rapid fire here so yeah. what is the best rule you ever broke don't talk about money <laughs> mm, love it what is your most valuable habit that was hardest to create you know I think it was um it was around looking at everything through a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. That's a hard habit to build, yeah. but I think it's so critical to say, you know, looking at all of this, um, you know, what's ahead of me in terms of a decision I'm making or choices I'm making. Um, am I am I taking into account people who are not like me, who are not mm. in the room? Am I being equitable about my choices here? Am I including everybody? And it is, it's, doesn't necessarily come naturally to everybody, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And it is something you have to work at. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of round a corner, uh, it, it's so um, valuable and it's so impactful and it's, it's life-changing. I love that you said that because I do think it's intentional, right? I mean, that's yes. the point. You do have unconscious bias. So if you're not intentional, you can't actually do it. So thank Absolutely. you for saying that. Can you name another woman that inspires you? Right now, I'd say Stacey Abrams. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's pretty timely and relevant right this moment, but um, that was a huge impact she had. And not to get political, but just even, it, it doesn't even have to do with whether you're Democrat or Republican. Um, it has to do with, with uh, standing up for, for democracy and standing up for people's voices. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's so, so critical that everybody, um, especially in the U.S., you know, in terms of our form of government, um, like it's so critical that everybody is able to have a vote and feel like that vote is secure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Tell us about a book that made you wiser. You know, I call out, um, there's a book by Minda Hartz, which is called The Memo, uh, what women of color need to know to secure a seat at the table. Mm. Um, and she she does a great job. It's not just for women of color. I think anyone in, in leadership, anyone that works <laughs> um, in a workplace, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's great context to understand uh, kind of that perspective um, and what you can do to uh, ensure that you're, um, being a, an ally. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you and I'm sure people will find a lot of really useful tools and, and advice that they can apply to their careers and their personal lives. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Women Don't Do That. I hope you feel inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Stay connected on Twitter and Instagram at Women Don't Do That. I would love to have you join the conversation, so make sure you join our next Instagram Live. Find all our podcast and blog content at womendontdothat.com. Join me next time.